do with the appointed offices uh, in the church, which are overseer or elder, and then the office of deacon, which we've been talking about more recently. Uh, I'm going to read this morning from verse 8 all the way down through verse 15 just to help us to get things in context. We've already studied some of these verses, but we will be picking up with verse 12 uh, as we begin this morning, actually, uh, verse 11, a few more comments there. But uh, deacons, likewise, must be of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women, or wives, as we understand it to say, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own household. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in, in, in case I am delayed, write so that you may know how we, one ought to uh, conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And in case I forget, uh, what we're going to do is leave 16 for next week, and we're going to spend the whole, uh, whole sermon next week just doing or talking about or considering verse 16 here, there's a beautiful doxology that here that Paul includes in this epistle that is really encompasses just about every aspect of the gospel that you can imagine. And so we're going to go into that in detail. Uh, but uh, back to verse 11. Wise must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful uh, in all things. We kind of left off here, and uh, I just want to encourage you to, to remember this, be mindful of this, that when men are called to office, if they're married, you know, the office is open to men that are not married, but if they are married, there's a sense in which that when they come into office, their wife comes along with them. Uh, and so that has to be considered when, we, when it comes time to nominate officers. We're not only looking at the husbands, but we're also looking and considering their wives as well. He goes on to include a couple of, uh, of attributes here that he also had for elders. The first one is he's a husband of one wife. And we understand that to mean that he's, he's talking about polygamy. There's not one who has more than one wife uh, at the same time. Uh, and also, he mentions good managers of their children and their own households, just as he had said for elders and overseers. And the logic behind that is this, is how would you think that they would take care of and serve the, the church of God as they ought if indeed they do not do the same thing with when it comes to their own households? Okay, let's go back now to verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence of faith that is in Christ Jesus. If you think back to how he began this chapter, he said something similar to this in regard to elders. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a t- it is a fine work he desires to do. In other words, he's commending men who are willing and desiring to seek these offices. 
Now, since we have been an organized church for 23 years, we've had 15 men who have served us as deacons. There were, have been a few of those who've served for a short period of time, maybe a couple of years or three years or four years, and sometimes job got in the way or this got in the way or that got in the way, and they resigned. As a consequence of that, we've had a, a few people who've taken emeritus status once they've gotten to an age where they really want to retire, in a sense, or relax a little bit from the responsibilities, technical responsibilities of, of being a deacon, then they have taken emeritus status. Doug Cogswell would be one of those. I want you to understand, though, Doug is still very much involved in the life of the church uh, and all of that and still does a lot of the same things the deacons do. He just the, the neat thing from him is he doesn't have to go to those long, boring meetings, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So... Those officers who take emeritus status are still very important to the life of the church. They're still very much a part of a big part of it. Uh, and I just want to say this morning that Springs Presbyterian Church would not be the church that it is if it was not for these men. They have served a very necessary and an essential function uh, in the lifeblood of the church. They've provided vital, essential service to this congregation, which means they've provided vital service to you, every one of us. And for that, we want to say to all of you that are serving now or who have served, thank you. Thank you for your time given. Thank you for your resources given. Thank you for the difficult decisions that you have to make sometimes. Thank you for being there for us. You have made a difference, whether you realize it or not. And it is very much appreciated. Verse 14, Paul writes, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. Now, you may be familiar with Paul's ministry in Ephesus, or you may not be. I think we talked about this probably when we first opened up this letter, and that is this is that when Paul left Ephesus, it was under duress. He was basically forced out of town. Because his preaching of the gospel was beginning to take away business from the silversmiths in Ephesus who made idols for people to worship. And as the gospel was taking hold, those men were beginning to feel the economic pressure and they were losing their livelihood. So they stirred up the crowd and Paul was basically run out of town. Now the fact that he's even considering going back to Ephesus ought to just amaze you and I considering the circumstances under which he left. See, in Paul's mind when he left, it was never intended to be permanently. He was leaving for a time. And this is one of the really neat things about the Apostle Paul. And one of the things we need to glean from this passage this morning is this, is that even after Paul left churches, and you need to understand that Paul was all about church planning. He knew that was the heart and soul of his ministry. And everywhere he went, his intention there was to raise up a group of believers in that particular city who in turn would then help to raise up other people in that city. And let me tell you this, would go beyond that city 
Colossae. We have no information that Paul ever visited Colossae, but Paul wrote to the Colossians. Because Colossae is very close geographically to places like Ephesus. And it's not much of a reach to believe that maybe some of the people in Ephesus actually were part of a church planning movement that moved into places like Colossae. But even after Paul left, there was a part of Paul that remained behind in Ephesus because he loved this church. He loved these people. He loved Timothy. Can you imagine leaving your spiritual son? This, Timothy could be probably the closest thing to a son that Paul ever had. And he left him behind to deal with that circumstance. There's kind of a rule of thumb today. And, and, and looking at this, I'm not sure that I agree with it. And the rule of thumb is this. It's basically that when a pastor leaves a church, if he, if he retires or if he, he resigns or, you know, he gets defrocked or whatever, if he, if he leaves, the general thought is this, is that he's supposed to, in a sense, leave that church behind. Basically, No more communication other than maybe just knowing people and loving people and stuff like that. In other words, not taking any kind of an active role at all as far as determining the direction the church is going or anything like that. In other words, to be, in a sense, an influence, but at the same time, to not be an influence and it interferes with the ideas and the intentions of the pastor who comes in to take his place. There's actually this kind of a standing order in the, in the PCA, and that is that when a senior pastor retires or he leaves office, so do all of his associate and assistant pastors. That doesn't always apply, but very often it does. See, I'm not sure I agree with all of that. It's not what Paul did. Paul continued. If he couldn't be in their person, he wrote letters. And he sent messengers. But he continued to converse with all of these people in all of these different churches. He had such a part in beginning. Paul was all about church planning for a lot of reasons. He knew it was God's will. Number two, he knew and he understood that it was the very best means of evangelism. There is no better way of evangelizing people than starting new churches. That's what Paul did. His whole ministry career was all about planning new churches. Places from which now the gospel would go out into the surrounding area and even to the remotest parts of the world. There's no telling how many churches Paul had a part in starting, either directly or indirectly. We have letters from churches, from, from cities that he had visited and, and planted churches in those cities. 
But we don't have it, probably a, a complete record of all of Paul's travels. There's a good possibility he went to places and started churches that are not even mentioned in Scripture. And guys and gals, it was that mentality that had everything to do with the, the rapid expansion of Christianity through the known world in decades. A religion that was totally unknown within 30 or 40 years had encompassed the whole known world. Because people like Paul were not about Paul. They were about Jesus. Paul loved people. He loved these people. He didn't have any physical children, but he had tons and tons of spiritual children. And I would imagine he prayed for every one of them every single day his whole lifetime. And there are many things I love about the PCA, but one of them is this. Is Paul is our model. Denomination started just in 1973, so we haven't been around that many years. We started out with around 200 churches that were coming out of the PCUS, which had become very liberal in its understanding of Scripture and everything else. And conservatives in the denomination fought the battle for decades and finally gave up and gave in and said, we no longer believe the PCUS to be a part of the Church of Jesus Christ because it's given up on the fundamentals of the faith of Christianity. And started a new denomination with only 200 churches. Today, there are 1,500 churches. So 1,300 plus of those churches are church plants. They've only been in existence since sometime since 1973. Why do we do this? We do this because we know that, uh, like Paul, that one of the very best ways to evangelize the world is to plant new churches. I would say to you that a symbol or a sign of a healthy church is one that is willing to participate in church planning projects. Not one that says we have our own little congregation, we love each other, we got this great family, and as far as we're concerned, we're going to minister amongst each other, but it stops here. Let me tell you guys, that is a very wrong mentality. We need to understand the bigger picture. We need to be a part of the bigger picture. You may not realize that a good chunk of the money that we give to Presbytery every year goes into supporting church planners, most of whom are in the Orlando area these days. But they're planning vital churches which will become sinners again from which evangelism can proceed forth. Wilma Massey, uh, Lloyd's mother, years ago, we didn't really, I didn't have that much time to get to know her a couple of years, and I used to go out and have coffee with her about once a week, and we would talk about things. And one of the things we kept hearing when we first started Springs Church was this, is why do we need another church? There's a church over there on that corner. There's one on that corner. There's one here, there, and yonder. And I'll never forget what she said. She said this. She said, why would we ever think that we could have too, much, too many churches to worship God? We need to have that heart. We need to have that understanding. 
Do we? If some of you have been here for a while, you may remember this. That even very early on, we began to talk about something that was, it was me, really, of something I was concerned about. And that is this, is if you look at a map of Florida, you'd find that there are PCE churches in virtually every region of Florida now, where there are only four or five back in 1973. So all the rest of them have been planted in those 30 or 40 years. But if you look at the map of Florida, there is one vast area where there are no PCA churches. And that vast area is west of I-75 between where we are and Live Oak. There is not one single PCA church in that whole area. Now, you might say, well, there's really not, there are not that many people there. There are not any big, bigger towns. There's nothing like Ocala or Gainesville there. What you're talking about is Chiefland, Williston, Cross City, places like that. And there are already churches there. But one of the things that we're very much committed to is that, is this, is is we really believe that reformed is the truth. It's all about God's grace. It's all about the scriptures. What has God said? What has God told us? We pursued this to some degree at one time. Remember Paul Kalfa? Some of you remember Paul Kalfa? When Paul was here, Paul and I went up there one day and had lunch in Williston just to see if he had any sense that maybe God might be calling him to start a church in Williston. That hadn't been that many years ago. So what have we been doing all these years? We've been sitting on our laurels and doing nothing. Well, that's just not true. You know that. We know that we have planted a church in a sense, and it's called Covenant Children's Home. That a lot of our resources and a lot of our efforts in the work of people here played into the bigger picture of Covenant Children's Home. And in a sense, Covenant Children's Home, you could say, is like part of the church, right? My challenge this morning is... What's next? Are we done? Is that the end of it? Covenant Children's Home is up and running and doing its thing, and now you and I, can we just sit back on our tails and do nothing but wait for Jesus to come back? Is that it? Let me just tell you this, that when uh, a few years ago, when our presbyteries get too big, they get you know 50 or 60 churches in it, we split them. And part of that is because when I first came into Central Florida Presbytery, on the East Coast, it went all the way from Jacksonville, Florida to Melbourne, Florida. And then took in a lot of Central, they took in all of North Florida and Central Florida, et cetera. And so it was huge. And so sometimes to get a Presbytery means you have to drive to three or four hours just to get there. Now, there are presbyteries out in the West where their, their presbytery covers two or three states, and so they actually had to fly to presbytery meetings, that sort of thing. But when it came time for Central Florida Presbytery to divide, which it did maybe 15 years ago, I made a personal request. Because originally they had drawn the dividing line to put Levy County in North Florida Presbytery. 
I ask on our behalf that it be left in Central Florida Presbytery because it was our intention to consider planting churches in Levy County. So what are we going to do? Seriously. And my challenge this morning, guys, is are we done? Is this it? We accomplished what God has wanted us to do. And let me tell you, if we come to that conclusion, we very much misunderstand everything. And that is this, is we, we're still wrapped up in the idea that it's all about me. It's all for me. It's for me feeling good. It's for me feeling family. It's for me being comfortable, so on and so on and so on. And we don't have much compassion for all of the people that are out there who still don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We cannot have that mentality. We cannot have that attitude. And it's something that's very pervasive in churches today. To get to the point of comfort where you're comfortable and sitting there on our laurels. Instead of doing the great commission as Jesus has told us to do. And as I said before, there's no better way to evangelize. We talk about an official evangelism program. There's nothing better that you and I could possibly do than to get behind church planning. Which we're doing. You need to understand that. Like I said, a good chunk of the money that we give to Presbytery every year goes to planning new churches. So we're involved in it already to some degree. But is, is, is that the level we want to be involved in it? Are we satisfied being there? Or do we see a much, much bigger picture that encompasses places like Levy County that no one else seems to be even concerned about? What do you think? There's a sense in which Seven Seven Rivers had a lot to do with the planning of Springs Presbyterian Church. They also planted Redeemer in Inverness, and they also planted Nature Coast down in Homosassa. Churches multiply churches. Our denomination is all about multiplying churches. It's not about, you know, having more churches so we can say we've got 1,500 churches or 2,000 churches or 10 million churches. It's about the expansion of Christ's kingdom into this fallen world and being an active part of making that happen. Let me tell you, this is the approach that all of our foreign missionaries take too. What they're doing there is they're not going there. As you find very often with missionaries, some guy comes from the United States and he goes to Africa and he becomes a pastor of a church and etc. This is not typically what our pastor or what our missionaries do. They go and they support national men to become officers in the church and eventually pastors. They train them. They help them in any and every way that they can. That's their primary function. Today we have five to 600 missionaries all across this world, and that's what they're doing. They're not going there to pastor churches themselves for the most part. They're going there to help prepare nationals there to do that, to start church planning movements in their own countries
me tell you, church planning is costly. It costs resources. Sometimes it costs people. It costs all kinds of things. But at the same time, all those things belong to the Lord anyway. My challenge this morning is what are we willing to do? My hope is there's some people sitting in this room today that will one of these days be able to look back and say, gosh, thank you, Lord, for using me and starting a new church. In some little way. Paul then writes, he says, but if, uh, if I'm delayed in order that you may know how to live or ought to be in, uh, in, the, in the house of God or the dwelling place of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Does God live in a house made by human hands? I mean, we can think about the temple, and we can think about the tabernacle. We know that God's presence was, was there in a way that you just don't find it in other places, right? But we understand that we have to always look at the Old Testament and understand the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament. And one of the things you find very much rooted in the New Testament is the idea that God does not occupy temples. He doesn't occupy by tabernacles. That's not where he lives. That God lives in his people. That we are temples of the living God. That there's a sense in which each one of us is part of this house of God or this dwelling place of God. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Really? Do you understand what I'm saying? That God lives inside of you. You house him. First Corinthians 3.16, he says this, You are a temple of God. The Spirit of God lives in you. Notice here that Paul was, and let me just tell you this, Paul never returned back to Ephesus that we know of. Even though it was his intention, it was his will and his purpose to return back to the city, back to where Timothy was, we have every reason to believe Paul never made it. We do know this, that on his way home from his third missionary journey, he bypassed Ephesus on purpose because he was in, in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. And this is where he called the, instead of going to Ephesus, where he knew he would be sidetracked, he pulled in at a place called Miletus, which is not too far away, and he called the elders from Ephesus to come to him. And that's what you find in, uh, in the book of Acts. There's this discourse of what Paul had to say to those men. But he never went back to Ephesus, the city of Ephesus again. Notice here he says that his intention is to come and not come a long time from now, but to come quickly, to come speedily. I don't want to put it off. I want to be there as soon as I can because Ephesus is important.
It's vital. And we glean from this, too, that Paul wrote this book for a number, or this letter for a number of different reasons. If you go back to chapter 1, you understand that one of the reasons he, he wrote was to instruct Timothy about people who were teaching false doctrine and false beliefs. Now what he's telling Timothy is, I wrote this in order to show you, tell you what ought to take place, how one ought to live in the dwelling place of God. Which is the church, the ecclesia. It's why he's been going through all this stuff about church officers. I'm sure probably a lot of you are just kind of tired of hearing it. We've been here for like three or four weeks or five weeks. You want to move on to something else. But this is vital stuff, guys. This is important. That's why it's here. Because Paul wrote this letter not only to Timothy, Paul wrote it for you and I. It's just as important in its instruction, its direction, as part of the Word of God, as for us as it was for Timothy. In other words, we need to take it and apply it just as Timothy took it and applied it in Ephesus. Verse 15, Paul uses the word ekklesia. Now, most of you don't know any Greek, but I would imagine if you know any Greek, you know what ekklesia means. It means church. It's not what it always meant. Basically, it means a fundamentally, it means a gathering, and initially it had really more to do with political aspects and things like that. But, but in the New Testament, it took on a new meaning. It becomes the gathering of the people of God of what we call the church. Even more importantly, it's the gathering of the people of God to worship. So what I'm telling you is, is Springs Presbyterian Church is, no, is more the church on Sunday morning when we're getting together to worship with one another before God than we are church at other times. That this is our primary and principal purpose. To worship God and to do it together. Jesus, it appears, was the first one to use ecclesia in regard to the church. He does it two times. If you remember the, what's called the Caesarea Philippi Confession, where they were in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus said, so-and-so, this is what the people say, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a Caesarea Philippi Confession. And that's where Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia, my church. Jesus also uses it in Matthew chapter 18 where, where he talks about discipline. You know, the three steps of church discipline. In the third step, he says, only then after you've done step one and two, then you tell it to who? To the ecclesia. To the church. 
Paul uses it very extensively. James uses it. John uses it. They refer to the church of Jesus Christ. The gathering of the saints for the worship of God. He makes another couple of points in regard to this. Verse 15, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how we ought to conduct, uh, one ought to (coughs) conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church, the ecclesia, of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. You notice how very often in Scripture God is described as being the living God. Have you ever wondered why? Well, some people would say, well, it's because he's the source of life. And yes, he is the source of life. And we're talking about not only life in the body, but life in the spirit. Everything that lives, lives because God has breathed life into it. Not because it's some biological system that somehow contrived itself. We also know that it has to do with the spirit. We live in a different age than Paul did. Things have changed in a lot of ways. In other ways, it hasn't changed at all. And that is that in his day, there was preponderance of idol worship. They had huge, huge monuments and idols set up in places and temples to Artemis and Ephesus and places like that where people would go and they would bow down to these metal or stone or wood carved images that were made by human hands. How ridiculous can that possibly be? Believing that something that man made actually had the kind of power that God would have. It is laughable. It really is. Isaiah talks about how some guy goes out into the forest and he cuts down a tree and he takes it home and he uses some of it to make a table. He uses some of it to, to cook his food and he takes what's left over and carves it to an idol and bows down and worships it. How ridiculous is that? But people today do the same sort of things. But you need to, you need to realize this. That when we see that phrase, the living God, one of the reasons it's there is differentiate him between him and all the idols. All those false gods that people followed who couldn't do anything. Can't accomplish one blasted thing. And people treat him like a god. He identifies the church of the living God as being the pillar and support of the truth. Now, what do pillars do? Well, we got a couple of pillars out there, right? Those two things, columns sitting up there, the end of the portico, what do they do? They hold the roof of the portico up, right? If you took those out, what would happen? The roof would come caving down, right? So they support, they raise things up and they support. This building is built on a foundation. If we had built this building without putting a foundation uh, down, what we would find is those walls would be all cracked up, the floor would be cracked up, this building probably wouldn't be standing anymore. And we know all this is true, that, that the building on a foundation is only as strong as the foundation it's on. Jesus used this as 
uh, as a means of teaching a lesson, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about how the foolish man built his house on the sand, but the wise man built his house on the rock, on a solid foundation. And what Paul is saying here is the church itself is that foundation. Because it's the place where you find truth. It's a guardian of the truth of God. A keeper of God's truth. So why plant more churches? Because where churches go, God's truth goes. And people desperately need to hear the truth. They do. There are a lot of people out there that are very willing to feed them lies and misinformation, false doctrines like Paul's warned against. That's all over the place. Open, false doctrines are openly practiced in many churches today. There are many churches today who don't, they've given up on the idea that the word of God is truth. You get to pick and choose what you like and forget about all the rest of it. I would say that's probably the general mentality amongst lots of church people today. It's, I mean, it, it really, if you, if you took all the people who claim to be Christians in the United States and you began to look at what they really believed, you would find that some, some of them are so far off the beaten path, you, you, you can no longer say that they're Christian because they don't abide by the truth of God. Because it's got stuff in it they don't like. It rubs them the wrong way. God wouldn't say that. God couldn't say that. That's not what God meant. When you go there, you get off on that slippery slope. And let me tell you, if you ever give up on the idea that the Bible is the word of God, the authoritative, the inspired, the, the word of God... You're off on that slippery slope. And you will slide to places you never thought you would ever go. You will give up eventually on the fundamentals of the Christian religion. It happens all the time. So why is this? This is is God's truth. We can't take from it. We can't add anything to it. He's given it to us for a reason. That we might know how you ought to be, how how you ought to live in the house of God. Read it. Study it. Abide by it. 